in criminal cases, you know, typically where we're thinking about SEPA, as it's called, we're thinking about terrorists. There's a statute that allows a classified information to be shown to a defense lawyer who has security clearance. Like I'm a defense lawyer now who has a security clearance. You could show me anything that I was authorized to see. And an agreement would be reached in coordination with the judge and the government about what could be told to the jury. In the criminal context, it has to be enough information so that the jury can understand what's going on and and weigh the relevance of it and so forth in making their their fact-finding determination. In a civil action, sometimes the government will come in and plead what's called the state secrets privilege, which shuts down civil litigation as a practical matter in most cases, whereas in the criminal ones goes forward. Welcome to the Hughes-Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes-Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes-Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white-collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. Today, I'm thrilled to have with me Kevin Harrell. Kevin is a partner at Hughes Hubbard, and we're going to take kind of a deep dive and maybe even geek out on some of the aspects around the search at Mar-a-Lago and the removal of documents from that facility. So, Kevin, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me on this incredibly timely topic. No, thanks, Tom. It's always a pleasure. So, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Sure. So, I've got kind of an unusual background uh, for a big firm lawyer. I was in the Army before I went to law school. I joined Hughes Hubbard right before 9-11, was called back to the Army, and was subsequently asked to join CIA. And I spent six years as a, a case officer, a human intelligence operations officer for the agency, before cycling back to the law, first working on Capitol Hill, spending some time in private practice and in-house, then getting pulled to work into the administration by John Kelly, and now happily back in private practice for a while with Hughes Hubbard and Reed. A couple of things that, in my background, that are relevant to this I had the opportunity to work counterintelligence cases jointly with the FBI while I was at CIA. And I've also, as a private practice lawyer, had the opportunity to defend people that have been accused of mishandling of classified documents or espionage. So let's just pick up right there and tell us what are classified documents? How are they classified? So they're classified by what's called the original classification authority, which is the person that collects them, whether it's a human intelligence officer like me getting a report from a source whether it's the National Security Agency getting a signals intercept, a communications intercept, whether it's the National Reconnaissance Office or the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency getting a a satellite shot of imagery from space. And so they classify it in one of three ways. It's either confidential, which is not particularly high. It's secret, which means the disclosure of it could cause damage to the security of the United States. Or it's top secret, which would cause grave injury to the national security of the United States if disclosed. Then within secret and top secret, you have what are called special compartments, a special compartment and information for human intelligence, for signals intelligence, for imagery intelligence, for example. 
And then there are a whole series of things even beyond that to restrict the most sensitive information. And pertinent to this, there's an entire separate clearance called Q clearance, which is granted by the Department of Energy, which gives you access to information about nuclear materials. And I, I had Q clearance, although I joked that I didn't have a doctorate in physics, so I couldn't actually understand anything that was marked with the Q clearance. What types of nuclear-related materials does a sitting president have access to, and how could the release of that information damage national security? So the sitting president has access to a number of things that are extraordinarily sensitive. First, he has the biscuit, the actual little credit card-looking thing with the nuclear codes on it, which he, he keeps in his breast pocket. And those codes are certainly rolled, as they say. They're certainly changed once he leaves office. But I don't think we'd want foreign adversaries to know exactly what even a past one of those launch codes looked like. And the president would use that to authenticate a nuclear launch order. And he would do that by the fellow you see standing by him or the gal you see standing by him with a briefcase called the football, which has the communication link to a special net, which is used for nuclear command and control. Anything about that communications network, which is used for nuclear command and control, is very, very sensitive. And then inside that satchel, there's a black book of options for the president of the United States to take in the event that he's informed or she is informed that the United States is under nuclear attack. And exactly what those options are, how many missiles we would throw at a target, what the yield of those missiles would be, whether they would be air burst or ground burst, things like that would be vital to an adversary in their own nuclear planning. And that's why any foreign intelligence service worth its salt is going to have very, very high on its operating directive. What are the nuclear use policies of an adversary? What are the likely nuclear targets of that adversary? How are they going to engage those targets? And what are the capabilities and weaknesses of that country's nuclear weapons? And in the case of you know, the United States, it's ballistic missile defenses as well. So how does the Department of Justice figure into the either protection of these sensitive materials or investigating potential leaks and or prosecuting folks who do so? There's several pertinent statutes, and the FBI within the Department of Justice has primary authority for investigating their violation. The two that are most likely in play here are 18 U.S. Code 793 and 18 U.S. Code 1924, which involve the, the mishandling of classified information. 1924 is a, is a misdemeanor count for simple negligence. 793 includes a gross negligence count. And then we'll see what's in this search warrant affidavit by the FBI. There are other statutes that relate to the deliberate passage of classified information to somebody who's not allowed to have it where you know, the penalties uh, run up to death. You walked us through the classification process. How about the declassification process? Is there a process? And what's the role, if any, of a president in that process? There sure is. And, and the president's role is absolutely unique. So an original classification authority can decide to downgrade the classification of his material. There were cases at CIA where I collected some information and it was subsequently determined that it would be extraordinarily useful to a U.S. police department. And so we knocked it down to almost the unclassified level so we could share it with a police department. And that's your prerogative because you collected it. When you deal with an anal intelligence analytical product of the sort that's briefed to a policymaker like the president, typically it has a mix of different kinds of intelligence in it, human intelligence, signals intelligence, often imagery intelligence. And in that case, you would have to go to each one of the agencies, CIA, NSA, NGA, and get them to agree to declassify or somehow downgrade the classification of it. 
citizens who have classification clearance, security clearances, can also challenge the classification of a document. And the National Archives can recommend the declassification of a document. The president's role is absolutely unique. The information ultimately belongs to the sitting president, and the sitting president can do with it whatever he wants. And there's some, there's some famous examples of this. The satellite imagery of Soviet missiles in Cuba in 1962 was extraordinarily classified. But President Kennedy made a good decision to present that evidence to the world at the U.S. Security Council, which was absolutely his prerogative. Two examples from the Reagan presidency would be Ronald Reagan released signals intelligence showing that the Soviets had shot down a Korean Airlines flight. He also released signals intelligence showing that the Libyans were involved in bombing a discotheque in West Berlin that killed some American soldiers. There have been incidents during President Trump's presidency where things were declassified, not for good reasons. The president disclosed to the Russians uh, counterterrorism information that had been given to the United States by Israel on the condition that it could not be shared with any third parties, but Trump just blurted it out. Also, President Trump tweeted what would have certainly been a top secret special compartment image of an Iranian missile that he just basically took a picture of his presidential daily brief and tweeted it out to the world, effectively declassifying it. And nothing could be done about that. It's similar, I would say, to the speech and debate clause of the Constitution. If a congressman or a senator goes to the well of the House of the Senate and reads classified information into the record, that might be a, a very irresponsible thing to do. But constitutionally, you couldn't prosecute him for it. The really interesting wrinkle here is that former presidents have absolutely no declassification authority. All of them, except my understanding, President Trump, have security clearance and continue to receive briefings by the CIA so that they can be assistance to the sitting president. But they can't declassify anything. It'll be interesting to see, as has been suggested by some of his supporters already, if President Trump is going to claim that he declassified any of this information before he left office. And again, if somebody else had requested declassification, there would be quite a paper trail about it and all sorts of, of records. But the president's authority here is plenary. And I, I think what we'll have to look to, if he claims something is declassified, is whether it really had been publicly disclosed. Let's say I had to find a client who was accused of mishandling classified information or disclosing classified information without authorization about the bin Laden raid. I could say, well, gosh, President Obama stood up and gave a press conference about the bin Laden raid. That's not a secret anymore. That's been declassified. That would probably be a, a pretty successful argument. So here, I'll, I'll really want to see whether the documents that were taken by the FBI the other day involve things that have already been widely discussed in the press and by administration officials, or whether it's things that had remained secret and should have remained secret. I'd like to turn now to the process that led to the eventual issuing of the warrant and the obtaining of the documents. Many of the listeners to this podcast have practiced on the civil side of things, and myself included. So we're maybe familiar with a Securities Exchange Commission subpoena, perhaps something from the Department of Justice, or even an informal request, but we may not be familiar with the criminal side of things and that process. So could you walk us through the process, starting with what law enforcement officials would do to get us up to the point where they obtain a warrant? The first thing that happened here, my understanding and this would be according to the proper procedure, is that the government simply asked for the information back. That's part of, of one of the statutes as to whether the government had demanded the information back and whether you gave it back or not. And if they'd simply given all the information back, that might have been the end of the story. Here, for some reason, the Department of Justice believes that not all the information was given back. And that could be because of a 
human source that told them that. It could be because there's an inventory of records that the National Archives is expecting, and some of them still haven't been turned over. We just don't know yet. The next thing that happened is that a subpoena was sent to the uh, lawyer for the president to turn the documents over, which is the polite thing to do, right, in a, in a white-collar case. And still, apparently, the information hadn't been turned over to the satisfaction of the government. So at that point, they had a attorney from the counterintelligence and export control section of the National Security Division of the Justice Department have an FBI agent swear out an affidavit to U.S. Magistrate Judge down in the Southern District of Florida for a search warrant to recover the information. Some people in the press, I think, have overreacted to the fact that it's the counterintelligence section of the Department of Justice that was involved here. The counterintelligence section is indeed responsible for investigating and prosecuting espionage, you know, people that are committing treasonous acts against the United States. But it's also responsible for investigating the mishandling of classified information, which doesn't necessarily need to involve a nexus to a foreign power. So uh, we don't know what we don't know yet. But the fact that CES, as it's called, was involved in this doesn't necessarily mean that there's um, a nexus to a foreign adversary. You mentioned a another player or another party that we haven't talked about yet, and that's the National Archives. And I think before this process or before the the Biden presidency, most people thought of the National Archives as either uh, a character in a movie or a librarian's. So could you tell us a little bit about, well, first of all, what is the National Archives, who staffs this, and what their role is in this process? Those are good movies. My kids like them very much. So the National Archives is part of the executive branch, and they are repository for all government records, which are, are required to be retained. And of course, they have a fantastic historical collection of things like copies of the Declaration and the Independence and Magna Carta. And I would encourage anyone, if they're in Washington, to go see an absolutely fascinating tour of the National Archives. Because so much of the executive branch of the federal government has been involved with national security since about World War II, an enormous amount of that information is classified. And so the National Archives is the custodian to a vast amount of classified information. Information that's classified is typically classified for 25 or 50 years after it's been produced. So many, many, many records of presidential administration, you know, in this case, let's say something is classified for 50 years, going back to the Nixon administration, would still be classified. So because it's the document custodian, the National Archives also has the authority to classify and declassify records and deal with appeals of the same. One of the Watergate reforms that came after Watergate were Records Preservation Acts. And the National Archives, of course, has a significant role in that as well. And what appears to have happened here is that because the National Archives believed that not all of the classified information, not all the classified records that were held by the Trump administration were turned over to the National Archives, that in addition to the likely mishandling and improper storage of classified information, that there had been a violation of the Presidential Records Act. And so they sent a criminal referral to the Justice Department. And because it involved national security information, it didn't go to the criminal division. It went to the national security division. What information would be required in a warrant which is submitted to a judge or a magistrate? And what supporting information would you expect to see attached to the warrant? Not as much as the press wants. I think some folks in the press think at this three o'clock possible disclosure today that we're going to see everything that the Justice Department is investigating related to January 6th and, and, and all sorts of other things. And I, I strongly doubt that that's the case. What we'll have is an affidavit from an FBI agent 
stating why he or she believes there's probable cause that evidence will be found at Mar-a-Lago and probably in a particular location within Mar-a-Lago that would indicate a violation of the Presidential Records Act or parts of the Espionage Act that pertain to the uh, storage and mishandling of classified information. And the judge's signature, the warrant itself, which was turned over to the president and his Secret Service detail when the FBI went to execute it, and then a receipt for what was taken. The receipt, to me, is going to be one of the most interesting things. Um, you know, sometimes a document can be very highly classified, but its title isn't necessarily classified. It might say vulnerabilities of the uh, Russian strategic nuclear force as an unclassified title, and then all the stuff underneath it is classified. Sometimes the title itself is classified, but I'm, I'm going to be very interested to see what's on the, the inventory sheet for what was taken by the FBI from Mar-a-Lago. You mentioned the term execution of the warrant. I'd like to move to that and also ask you, first of all, how is a warrant executed, but also what's the role of the Secret Service in this most unique execution of warrant? It's fascinating. So the execution of the warrant you know, is just a dramatic way of saying that they serve it and they, they look for the stuff. Typically, we've all seen on TV or in real life when the FBI shows up in their famous uh, blue and yellow raid jackets and knock on someone's door at dawn. They're standing in their evening clothes on the lawn, you know, as Jeffrey Clark was, uh, for example, recently when a, a warrant was executed on his property. And the agents go in and, and, and they do their thing. So, you know, a lot of terms have been thrown around like you know, raid, which is, is really more of a military term than a law enforcement term. But sure, it's used you know, by law enforcement also. Here, one of the things that's fascinating, as you said, is the involvement of the Secret Service. So by statute, former presidents for the rest of their life have a Secret Service detail. And they're responsible for protecting that president from lunatics or, or foreign assassins or whoever might want to hurt them. And here you have armed FBI agents that were going into the, the president's house. He wasn't there at the time. I mean, gosh, when, when FBI agents go to the White House, they have to turn over their, their sidearms to the Secret Service, for example. The Secret Service is not very comfortable with other armed people being around the president. I even saw that in the, in the military when I'd be in Iraq or Afghanistan, the president would visit and Secret Service didn't like the fact that there were lots of guys, even though they're obviously loyal to the United States, around the president with firearms. So what happened here is that I believe the attorney general called the secretary of Homeland Security, who called the director of the Secret Service. The director of the Secret Service called down to the head of former President Trump's detail and said, be aware, the FBI is going to be showing up to serve a warrant at, at Mar-a-Lago. As a courtesy, the FBI didn't wear their raid jackets. They, they didn't boom the doors, the cops say, knocking it down and, and going in or anything else like that. So they, they tried to make this process as easy for the foreign president as possible. The president decided for his own reasons, whether his legal defense or his, his political interests, to disclose it. But it's, it's going to be a very delicate thing going forward, I think, if there are any criminal charges brought against the president, how the FBI deals with the Secret Service. Because you know, the, the president, if he's indicted, the foreign president will have to make an initial appearance in court. And it's possible that a, a federal judge could decide that he's a flight risk and remand him to the custody of you know, the D.C. jail or something like that. The Secret Service still has a statutory authority to protect the president. So how this is handled, if it goes in that direction, is anybody's guess. It could be house arrest at Mar-a-Lago. You could put him on a military base or something like that, especially given some of the allegations we've seen recently that the Secret Service may have even been involved in criminal activity to cover up possible crimes related to the uh, January 6th coup attempt. It's going to be a very fraught relationship between Secret Service, FBI, the Justice Department, the federal courts, the U.S. Marshals, and all the other players. Every 
white collar defense practitioner I've ever interviewed who has handled an internal investigation where the government's involved has always told me the first question to ask is, are the documents secure? Are your client's documents secure? Could I flip that question and ask you, how does the government not simply secure documents, but maintain chain of custody if you have to go to the next step? It's going to be especially challenging here. Every, well, every Secret Service agent and every FBI agent has top secret clearance. So that, that's one thing that makes it easier. Typically, you know, the documents are, if we're talking about physical documents here, they're secured and receipts are signed and they're, they're held in a, an evidence locker with a, a log, an evidence log to show how they've been handled. Here, assuming that the documents are classified, they're going to have to be held in what's called a special compartmented information facility, a SCIF, which has a heavily locked door. It has um, 24-7 electric monitoring. It has recording. It has alarms. It has um, very heavy safes within it that are quite secure. So the evidence is going to have to be kept in there. Now, that's not a problem really for the Justice Department National Security Division because they deal with those kind of things all the time. Some federal courthouses and U.S. attorney's offices are better equipped for that sort of thing than others. The one in Washington, D.C., I think would be well equipped for it. Another interesting evidentiary question and chain of custody question is publishing the documents to a jury if it came to a trial, if they're extremely classified. They're not going to go to the extent of security clearing a jury. Perhaps there would be some sort of stipulation reached between the government and former President Trump as to something that could be told to the jury about it. And there is where the Classified Information Protection Act will come in. In criminal cases, you know, typically where we're thinking about SEPA, as it's called, we're thinking about terrorists. There's a statute that allows a classified information to be shown to a defense lawyer who has security clearance. Like I'm a defense lawyer now who has a security clearance. You could show me anything that I was authorized to see. And an agreement would be reached in coordination with the judge and the government about what could be told to the jury. In the criminal context, it has to be enough information so that the jury can understand what's going on and, and weigh the relevance of it and so forth and making their, their fact-finding determination. In a civil action, sometimes the government will come in and plead what's called the state secrets privilege, which shuts down civil litigation as a practical matter in most cases, whereas in the criminal ones goes forward. So here, it'd be presumably a criminal case. State secrets privilege wouldn't apply. Classified Information Procedures Act would. And they would have to come up with some modus vivendi of dealing with this classified information and an uncleared jury. Uh, what about the Department of Justice lawyers involved in this case? Would they also be required to have top secret clearance? Yes. Your average assistant U.S. attorney or Department of Justice trial attorney doesn't have top secret special compartment information clearance. But the ones who work for the counter-espionage section of the counterintelligence section, rather, of the National Security Division do, and as do their, their paralegals and their, their legal assistants and everybody else like that. But it, it certainly limits the universe of people that are going to be handling the, the information and who can talk about the case. You talked a little bit earlier about what you sort of speculated about what we might see released today at three. Do you think that release of information, particularly the catalog or recordation of what was obtained in the execution of the search warrant, will that give you, people like you, people like me, readers of the New York Times, insight into what the uh, government was looking for? I think so. It's not going to have information on the broader criminal investigation that all this suspect is going on related to the, to the president's role in January 6th, but I, I think we'll be able to learn quite a lot of information. And 
few people know, uh, including myself, and everybody is speculating. I'm, I'm speculating. Is it a matter of the materials he took would be of possible interest to the the Russians or the Chinese or the North Koreans regarding our nuclear capabilities and our, our ballistic missile defenses? Is it information related to the production of nuclear weapons that would be very great interest to the Saudis, for example, you know, who would like to develop a nuclear weapon or less likely the Iranians? I can't see the Iranians having much interaction with the former president's orbit. But, you know, the former president is quite involved with the Saudis and his you know, son-in-law and has received massive funding for his distressed uh, real properties from the Saudis. So is there information that would be helpful to the Saudis in developing a nuclear program in there? That's one of the things that I would be very interested in, in seeing, sort of the, the QE bono, the who profits from these documents if they're misplaced. We don't know. You know, perhaps it will just be sentimental reminders of uh, the raid that killed the head of ISIS or the raid that killed the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, and they're making a mountain out of a molehill. It wouldn't be the first time the government has demonstrated a lack of judgment and perspective in these matters, but we'll know more soon. Let me pick up on a point you just mentioned. You name North Korea, Russia, China, if not enemies of the United States, perhaps adversaries might be an appropriate term, but there's uh, top secret classifications and rules really apply to any country outside the United States, almost friend or foe. You mentioned Saudi Arabia, but there could perhaps be other countries who want classified information that is beyond just the, the limited group we've talked about. Is that correct? Absolutely. Pretty much everybody spies on everybody. There's a gentleman's agreement between the United States and the British Commonwealth countries called the Five Eyes, the British, the Canadians, the Australians, and the New Zealanders that we're not going to bother wasting our resources spying on one another when our interests are almost completely aligned. But the Israelis spend a lot of time spying on the United States. The French spend a fair amount of time spying on American industry. Countries such as South Korea and Taiwan, who are our allies, but want to check and see whether we're sincere in our agreements, public or private, to defend them, spend a fair amount of time spying on us. Pretty much everybody spies on everybody. Even if there were highly sensitive classified documents all the way up to nuclear codes that were removed, what could possibly lead to a pretrial detention if the danger, the immediate danger, or the clear and present danger is removed by simply removing the physical documents? It could be a matter of what's in the president's head, although that would surprise me. The pretrial detention question is going to be interesting because if we take the fact that this is a, a very well-known personality out of it, if I was an assistant U.S. attorney and I said to the magistrate judge that this is a person of considerable wealth with access to an aircraft, with properties overseas, who has in the recent past called for violent mobs to attack people that are opposed to him, all of that would militate in favor of somebody being remanded for pretrial detention. On the other hand here, a defense lawyer would say, this is an old man. He doesn't have any criminal record. He's presumably not charged with any violent crimes and the Secret Service can make sure that any conditions of bail are adhered to. So I, I think it's more likely that you would see house arrest at Mar-a-Lago than the president going to a federal correctional facility while awaiting trial. But it's, there's not a zero possibility. Depending on what they find, if it looks like there were records that had been improperly disclosed or were going to be improperly disclosed to a foreign adversary, then the fact that he has the ability to flee, I think, might weigh heavily. Kevin, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on the topics we've touched on, Hughes Hubbard or yourself, what would be the best place for them to go? 
as you know, I'm happy to talk about this stuff anytime. It's very interesting to me. So please you know, reach out to me at, at Use Hubbard and Reed on our, on our website or reach out to me on LinkedIn, uh, Kevin Carroll. I can talk about this stuff on Blue in the Face until I bore you. Kevin, I wanted to thank you. I've really enjoyed myself today and I look forward to continuing this conversation. Till next time, Tom. Thank you.